0: the Holy Gospel according to John, the second chapter. Glory to you, o Lord. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables, making a whip of cords. He drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, that gospel reading begins with Jesus going to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, which of course means that that gospel reading actually begins about 1,300 years earlier when the Jews, enslaved in the land of Egypt, were told by Moses that God would come to free them from the harsh powers that harshly held them captive there. And since those harsh powers Refused to relent from their harshness. God, says the book of Exodus, took harsh means. Horribly harsh means. Hard for us to understand how God could possibly be so horribly harsh means. The only thing about which maybe we can understand is that in this ravaged by sin world, which is therefore too often a horribly harsh place, apparently sometimes when a greater good is involved, God sees fit to act in the only ways this world and its harsh powers will apparently see fit to understand in this case, meaning an angel, an angel of death, was sent by God to the land of Egypt And the firstborn son in every Egyptian household, including the household of the mighty Pharaoh, died that night. But the Jews, slaves in Egypt, the immigrants in this land, who unpatriotically continued to speak a different language than Egyptian, and who had become so numerous that they were now deemed a threat to the greatness of Egypt and treated accordingly and very harshly had been told ahead of time by their leader, Moses, to sacrifice a lamb, a perfect lamb, one without blemish or fault, and to paint some of that lamb's blood around the doorways to their houses. And when the angel of death saw a house with blood painted around its doorways, Moses said, the angel would... And it turns out the angel did pass over that house, and no one died there. So death came that night to the Egyptians, but freedom came that night to the children of Israel, who were then told by Moses ever to remember that day when God had delivered them from their bondage, to remember it on a day that became known as the Passover. And so it was that neither now 1,300 years later, because he was a Jew, and Jews did remember, 1,300 years after Moses, Jesus the Jew went to Jerusalem for the celebration, the remembrance of the Passover. Approaching the city from the east, he and his disciples Passed over the peak of the Mount of Olives, where they caught their first stirring peak of the old city of Jerusalem and the temple right there in front of them. They then made their way down through the Kidron Valley and then rose up again and entered through the eastern wall of the old city, that gate located there, entering directly into the Temple Mount. And the temple courtyard, except upon entering the temple courtyard, the first thing Jesus noticed was not the temple, but the chaos. Thousands of religious pilgrims crammed into the temple courtyard, all with the same goal, to offer a sacrifice to God. A cow or a lamb, if they could afford it. A dove or two if they couldn't. And since cows and lambs didn't travel well from distant homes, and because you couldn't just use any cow or lamb or dove, you had to use officially approved ones. These had to come from the church store, be in the the Augsburg catalog these had to be official official doves and cows and lambs, so they were available there for sale in the temple courtyard and Since the wild, widely used currency, the pagan currency of pagan Rome was regarded as sacrilegious, a, just a desecration to the holiness of god you couldn 't use it to purchase things in the temple so So there were money changers who would take that dirty foreign currency of yours and for a fee they would exchange it for acceptable currency, holy currency, which could then be used to pay the fee for the church-approved sacrificial cow or lamb or dove that could then be offered as a sacrifice to God. And so, says John chapter 2, in the temple, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables, making a whip of cords. He drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. By the way, Ruth Johnson won the the raffle for the uh, quilt that we had earlier today, in case you hadn't heard. This is the day often remembered as the day that Jesus got mad. Which presents just a tiny bit of a problem for those of us who, um, like myself, are oftentimes actually fairly orthodox about a number of things. I mean, I'm wacko about a few things, you know this, but I'm kind of orthodox about most things, including the traditional Christian belief that Jesus never sinned, which creates just this tiny bit of a problem for people like me because, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself says that anger is a sin. Now, to be fair, in that text, it actually never says that Jesus is angry in this scene. But to be fair from the other direction, we all know that actions speak louder than words, and it surely seems like actions like turning furniture upside down and shouting and driving people out with a whip qualifies as anger in action. The book of Ephesians will later wade into it by suggesting that anger in and of itself isn't inherently sinful, but rather it depends on what anger leads you to do, or perhaps what anger leads you to not do that determines the sinfulness or the not sinfulness of it, as in I'm angry with you and so I strike you. Anger leading to sin. That's Ephesians' take. I'd like to suggest that things like where anger comes from and what it's about and who it's directed at and who or what it's on behalf of can also determine the appropriateness or not appropriateness, the sinfulness or not sinfulness of a given experience of anger, which can sometimes even be such a thing as a righteous kind of anger. As in the case, for example, of others and me too, folks, and how angry I am that children have been killed by school by guns in schools again and there's this, still this long list of things that politicians and others say we can't or we won't do about it. Which, truth be told, has led me to say some things that I shouldn't have said about some things who think differently that I do and in that i have in anger sinned but truth be told too there is some burning righteousness in this anger as well for this nation has sinned if we can't or won't do better than this by our children so yes anger can anger often does hold hand with sin lead to sin but too anger can be fueled by and hold hands with righteousness. Which I believe is the case with Jesus in this story. He's angry, but the anger he is angry with is absolutely not sinful. It is righteous. Which leads to the obvious question, well then what exactly was Jesus righteously angry about in the temple courtyard that day, which we need to not answer too quickly because we might not get it right. We need to think about that, and we need to think about it by thinking about this. When Matthew and Mark and Luke tell their version of either this same incident or a similar incident that happened later, two or three years later, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, they tell us that on that occasion... Jesus was angry because the vendors and money changers were taking unfair and unscrupulous advantage of religious pilgrims by overcharging them. On that occasion, Jesus angrily said, you have made my father's house into a den of thieves. He's apparently upset then, in other words, because the traders are trading dishonestly, right? But in John's telling, this is the one we just heard today, in John's telling of this same or perhaps a similar kind of event from two or three years earlier, right at the very, very beginning of his ministry, that's not the case. Jesus, in that passage we read today, doesn't complain about dishonest buying and selling and trading. He complains in this case about buying and selling and trading, period, period. You've made my father's house into a marketplace, he says in the NRSV translation. You have made my father's house into a house of trade, he says in the RSV translation. You've turned my father's house into a for crying out loud mall of America, he says essentially in Eugene Peterson's contemporary message version. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in word and deed, Jesus is angry. But in John's telling of the story, his gripe isn't about the temple having become a place where trade is dishonest. His gripe is with the temple having become a place where trade is carried out at all. Now, think about this. When trade is carried out, I give someone something and they give me something in return. So I give Casey's $30.97 and they give me gas and a cup of coffee. I give Gloria Day's youth $20 and they give me lunch and an hour of tech support in return. I give a $5 donation on Wednesday night and I get soup and bread in return. I give Gloria Day a month of work and I get a month of paycheck. In return, When trade is done, business transactions happen. I give you something and you give me something back. It's the way things work. And I don't imagine there's necessarily anything wrong with that as long as there's no you know, Ponzi scheme or something going on. In other words, as long as the trade is being done fairly. That's what I think, and I imagine that's what you think. It's just that, as I said, Jesus doesn't complain here in John's telling of the story that trade in the temple courtyard is being carried out unfairly. He complains in this account that trade is being carried out, period. So what's up with that, do you think? Is his point that money should never change hands on church grounds? By the way, we'll be collecting the noisy offering today So I have your change ready. Is his point that you should not have our Keep Your Fork dessert contest to support table to table? By the way, tickets will go on sale soon. My goodness, is his point that we have been living in sin these last few weeks by raffling a quilt for water to thrive? Ruth Johnson was the winner. See, I think that's kind of shallow, and I think that kind of shallowly misses the point. I don't think Jesus' real beef is with a bowl of soup being bought, sold, and traded for on Wednesday night. I don't think Jesus' real beef is with a raffle ticket to benefit those who would so benefit if they just had water in their village and children could actually drink clean water instead of having to walk all day to go get it and could instead perhaps be in a classroom going to school. I don't think this is about those raffle tickets being bought, sold, and traded for. I think what this is, Jesus is so upset about, what upsets him righteously, is that God is being bought and sold and traded for. Because unlike that scene spoken of in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is not in this case right about in, at the beginning of his ministry talking about a corrupt or dishonest system. He's talking right here at the beginning of his ministry making dramatically clear that he came to this earth to turn upside down the whole darn system. He was talking about his body, they said later, his own death. He came to turn upside down any and every religious system which says that we buy what God offers by giving God something first, something with which we purchase, trade for, what God has to give. So, question, is there any, if he came to turn that upside down, that kind of thought, is there any upside downing your spiritual life needs? Because that's something you think, or at least sometimes you find yourself thinking? Or is there any upside downing a neighbor of yours needs because that's something he thinks and no one has ever bothered to tell him otherwise? Does he think that he needs to be good so he can come here and trade his goodness for God's love? Does she think she needs to dress just right? so she can come here and trade proper appearances for a place where she'll be welcomed? Do they think they'd better get their act together so they can be just like you and trade their togetherness for togetherness with God? Do they think they'd better live life just right so they can trade their just rightness for heaven and for eternal life? Do they, in other words, or do you, for that matter, think that church, Gloria Dei Lutheran Church, the Christian church, Christ church, is just one more trading place in this world's already full circus of trading places, telling them and us what we need to give in order to be given what we need. If yes, that is what some sometimes think, then someone needs to tell them. And maybe I need to remind you that Christ Church is not one more vendor in a three ring religious courtyard already full of trading places telling you how to earn God's favor. Christ Church is a place where sinners, who have every single one of us earned, God's righteous judgment. Nevertheless, gather around this promise. Jesus came to trade places with us. They realized later he was talking about his death. The Christian church is not a trading place where we, after we've become good, are now welcome. The cross is a trading place where Jesus goes because he becomes us. He becomes our not-goodness. He became, 2 Corinthians says, he became sin He became my sin. He became your sin. He took our place so that with nothing to trade, we might be welcomed to his place. He, in other words, is not the one to whom we offer sacrificial lambs. He is the lamb, the perfect one with no blemish, who offered, who sacrificed, who traded himself for us. He was talking, they realized later, about his own death. And so we don't come here to trade with God for a blessed thing. We come to worship, which Jesus found to be sorely lacking in the, in the trading arena of the temple courtyard. We come here to worship The heart of which is giving God our everything, including everything, God bless us, that we're not proud of. That we wish wasn't true. Because there's not a righteous way in the world to spin it. At least if God is the one we're trying to spin to. Worship at its heart is spin-free. We come as we are. We come with all into the presence of the spin-free promises of God. God who says your sins are forgiven. Give them to me. God who doesn't just talk about sin. God who says the good I created you for, the good within you, the good I gave you, the good that is you, I wish you could see it as clearly as I see it. For the good within you is so seeable to me. Use it for good. For the world. For me. And God who says, and please don't, my child, please don't ever, I weep if you do, please don't ever come to me and say, if I do good, then will you love me. My child, I'm your father. And I'm God the Father, the Father of my only begotten, the perfect Lamb who took our love for you all the way to a cross where he took every unlovely thing about you away for good. Good. Amen.